What are we willing to give up to find meaning, connection, and a sense of belonging? What happens if we don't self-promote, self-create, and self-brand on social media? Will we find the right partner? Will we get into the right college or find the best job? Tara Isabella Burton is the author of the novels Social Creature, The World Cannot Give, and Here in Avalon, which we will be talking about today, as well as the nonfiction books Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, and Self-Made, Curating Our Image from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Tara Isabella Burton, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Congratulations on the publication of Here in Avalon. And you've selected a, a passage that you're going to share with our listeners. Absolutely. So I'm actually going to read from the opening of the novel, giving us an introduction into the two sisters who, over the course of the novel, one by one, will fall under the spell of a mysterious theatrical troupe that may or may not be a cult. Chapter one. Once there were two sisters. Cecilia was the elder, though you wouldn't think it to look at her. She rarely washed her face, she never brushed her hair, which had once been pink and which had once been orange and which was now a brittle shade of blonde. Her tights were usually ripped, her shirt smelled like sweat and cigarettes. She wore heels invariably, even though she couldn't walk in them, which meant that when Cecilia showed up anywhere, an hour late or else without notice altogether, you'd hear her tramping down the street before you saw her. Cecilia always sounded, Rose said, like a revolution. God knows if you met Cecilia, you wouldn't think her an adult at all. If you met Cecilia at a bleary Berlin bar, say, or an astral projection workshop or a silent retreat run by nuns or any of the other places Cecilia was usually to be found, you would probably think that she was 16 or 17, an underdeveloped 20 at most. It wasn't just her face either. It was that angelic and infuriating way she had of looking up at you with blue and blinking eyes like you somehow had the answers to all the questions she had not yet figured out nobody in their right mind could answer. Questions like, what does living a good life look like? Or why do we always want the wrong things? Or how do we even know what we want in the first place? Yeah, so in this book and in your other novels, your social creature, the world cannot give, you present characters who are all in different ways in search for a sense of belonging, uh, seeking for something outside of themselves, whether it's a, a charismatic figure or group in terms of this Avalon. Just tell us, what is Avalon and why do the sisters Rose and Cecilia get drawn into it? So the Avalon's a bit of a mystery, but what we know over the course of the novel is that there's a mysterious red boat that appears to lost, lonely, broken-hearted people who have met someone in a bar on a night out who give them this card and tell them, be at this place at this time. And they go on this boat and have this sort of potentially magical, supernatural experience, this all-night cabaret, and they come back a little bit changed. And some people seem to become addicted to going on this boat, to finding where it will dock again and again, and some people end up disappearing. And ultimately, Cecilia disappears with the Avalon, and it's up to Rose to figure out what happened to Cecilia, where is the Avalon, what is the Avalon? She assumes it's either some kind of cult or some kind of supernatural force. And in the process of trying to find the Avalon, finds herself drawn to it. 
And when you have a story about two sisters looking for a ferry boat, it stands to reason that both of them find it. Both of them have to contend with life on the other side of the divide between what seems to be the real world and the fairy world, but which is in fact, as it turns out, a little bit more complicated. I think and it's very tempting wanting to disappear. I, I read you had said that you were one of these people that when you were younger wished that, why wasn't life like a book? Why yeah. was it orderly like that? Why couldn't you escape into that kind of perfection, which is a, a lure I think that we've all experienced at some time in our life. Absolutely. And I was definitely one of those intense theater kid teenagers. I wrote in my live journal how I wanted a poetic life and was constantly frustrated as an 18-year-old, 21-year-old by the fact that life didn't seem to be what I thought it would be. And I think I've a new 33 now. I've got a more nuanced take on that and have been fortunate enough to find quite a lot of parts of life that do feel uh, a bit like enchanted novels. But the, all of my characters, I think, and all of my fiction are looking for some kind of transcendence. And I think if there's any set of themes that runs through my work, it is one, this hunger for something more, for transcendence, and particularly characters who try to find that transcendence in aesthetic beauty. In Social Creature, Louise and Lavinia find this in a bohemian New York that's also defined a lot by wealth signifiers and class signifiers, a bit of a sort of Whit Stillman metropolitan style vision of New York frivolity. A little bit more seriously and in The World Cannot Give, uh, Laura and Virginia find it in religion, particularly uh, this Anglo uh, high church Episcopalian choral music and traditionalist Catholicism because Virginia, just basically teenage zealot, kind of makes up her own version of Christianity based on what she's read and the way that so many teenagers, including me at one time, cobbled together what I thought from a bunch of different books and sources. And then finally, in Avalon, the sisters, both, they're older in their 30s. They want something that is both beautiful and otherworldly and transcendent, but they're also looking for a sense of community. Uh, a sense of other people that are like them, that are lost like them. And what starts out as the allure of something that is beautiful and magical and different ends up also being the allure of being part of something, of being part of this group that has a clear, single-minded mission in the world. Yes. And to speak about your own journey, you've explored different intense communities. I think you mentioned Episcopalian, but you also got yeah. Jewish, you have a Catholic overtones. Yeah. I grew up in New York City, very typical sort of like mixed Jewish, Christianish upbringing. My, I grew up with a single mom of Jewish origin, but also was interested in religion. So we did Christmas and Easter Episcopalianism. And it was something like growing up with a very close family, but small family. We were always drawn to what we didn't experience to large, intense communities. And the ones that particularly stand out in my 20s when I become old enough to find community for myself, I got very involved in immersive theater fandom. I was a big fan of the punch drunk show Sleep No More, which is closing this year after 12 or 13 years, I believe. And it was the sort of, you go into the space with a hundred rooms and you wander the space and follow the actors and make your own journey through it. And there was somewhere between 20 and a hundred at various points, people who got really into spending all their money going to the show, going on different tracks, following different actors every night, going to be in this space and be in this other world. And it was something that became a big part of my social life. It was one of the reasons that I ended up moving back to New York. I was in grad school for theology in, in England at Oxford, but decided to come home to where I was from. 
uh, in part because this vision of this life I could live in New York, even this sort of fantastical, otherworldly life in theater seemed so attractive then. But what it really is the thing that I came to realize is that what I was looking for in all of them was a sense that reality was bigger and more enchanted than was immediately apparent to me. An irony is I was a theologian, so I was working on this problem intellectually, but didn't think it through. And then came back to the church, the Episcopal church, when I was about 27, 28. That was a huge sort of turning point for me, philosophically, theologically, aesthetically. And seeing in the vision of a kind of religious vision of the world that I believed in also the kind of thing that I had been looking for in various versions elsewhere. But I also did find the music, the incense, the pageantry was part of what drew me to faith, even though I think it's not the totality of my faith. And so even now, I go to church on Sundays, I have a wonderful church community. And yet I'm often still like aesthetically drawn. What if there's a way of doing full time? Uh, and one of the magazines I, I write for, uh, Plow Magazine, it's a wonderful publication if you don't know it, is published by uh, the Bruderhof, who are a, an Anabaptist Christian community who hold all property in common and a pacifist community, have wonderful ideological commitments. I am not a member. I will never be a member. There, there are also theological differences there. I think they're more conservative on certain issues than I am. But when I go and I work with some of these members, we're having a writer's weekend out uh, at, the, at one of their campuses, their, one of their physical communities. I'm always struck that many people seem really happy in a life that is more intentionally, an intentional community is more intentionally set outside the quote unquote real world. And I find myself often wrestling with and drawn to the appeal of we live according to these values and we give up a lot of what makes quote unquote normal modern life normal and modern. And even though that is something that I know that I couldn't do, I'm very obsessed with the appeal of something like that. And so Avalon was written as a kind of love letter to these very different worlds, immersive theater fandom and intentional Anabaptist Christian community. But where or I say love letter also, I think, very cognizant of perhaps the potential dark sides of being part of a very intense community that moves away from the world. But I wanted to explore what is it like to give up everything in the service of something that seems the moment to really matter, to be more real than real, more enchanted than enchanted. And what's the relationship of that life to the quote unquote real world, especially? Is there something in everyday life that is equally enchanted? And that tension is a huge part of the work. And I want, it seems like what you're talking about it's like reclaiming, I think always think it's like the challenge of maturity is like retaining that childlike sense of wonder and intensity and focus and spontaneity and where you almost don't have a sense of self, like what you look at becomes you. There's not this sense of division. And then as we grow older, we put on these protective barriers. And that seems also to be what's the, at the heart of, uh, of your work is it's difficult that transition into maturity shouldn't be bound up with losing something essential about ourselves. Absolutely. And it's funny because Here in Avalon is both a book with the oldest characters that I've written, but it's also a book about childhood or what it means to be childlike or trying to recover that. It was written at a time in my life when I was wrestling with that question of how do you recover that? It's a sort of, in a sense, here the world cannot give is about teenagers trying to figure out how to be adults again. And Here in Avalon is about adults figuring out how to be children again. And at the same time, there is Cecilia, this character that we've just 
heard about has this childlike sense of wonder in the world. She's a bit of a holy fool, but her actions have disastrous consequences. Every time she goes and looks for the next big thing, the answer to all the questions that she has, what she calls the Holy Grail, she hurts the people that she loves, that she has obligations to, her sister, later on her husband. And so this one of the sort of questions in Avalon is alongside these questions of searching and transcendence and what we want is what obligations keep us grounded? What are real? Is it familial bonds? Is it friendship? Is it, in the case of Cecilia and her strange husband, Paul, like marriage vows? One of the subplots of the novel is that when Rose goes to find Cecilia, she is helped in her journey by Cecilia's estranged husband, Paul. And Cecilia and Paul have gotten married very quickly after a couple of months of sort of whirlwind romance. And Cecilia freaks out and runs away a few months later. Doesn't say why, but we, we know it's not that Paul's necessarily a bad guy. It's It seems to be that she's just freaked out. And Paul refuses to divorce her. And it's not for religious reasons. He's not Catholic or anything. He just, he says, a promise is a promise. And I made it, so I'm going to keep it, even though I barely know this woman. And this romance was a maybe a big mistake, but I made that promise and I'm going to keep it. And Rose, in teaming up with Paul to find Cecilia, finds herself first appalled by this. Like, who is this stubborn idiot who clearly has made a dumb decision and is making a dumber decision by compounding it? But ultimately, as someone who is self-protective and is thinks about her life, about how could I optimize my own sense of happiness, this very unfamiliar kind of stubborn chivalry, whatever you want to call it, is something that she's drawn to as much as uh, she is drawn to the Avalon. She develops romantic feelings for Paul, even though uh, he is in love with and married to her sister. And that, I think for me, the, the Avalon is like two stories of Rose being pulled out of her life. And one of them is by the Avalon, but the other is by Paul, by witnessing what, if the Avalon is cut ties with everything you have and run off in search of something really like magical and otherworldly, Paul's is, I'm just going to follow what I said I was going to do for the sake of following it. The promise is what matters, not my happiness, not the outcome, just living up to some commitment. And I think ultimately, this is a sort of Bildungsroman about Rose. You know, Cecilia is the, the bigger character, the showier character, the more poetic character. But at the end of the book, the question is, how is Rose going to live after her experiences with the Avalon and with Paul and Cecilia and this love triangle that makes her rethink everything in her own life? Hi, Tara. Thank you so much for uh, being here and allowing us to ask you these questions. I read uh, here in Avalon, and I also saw some of your interviews. And in one of the interviews, you talked about Lydia being one of your favorite characters, if not the most favorite character you've ever yeah. written about. And I actually enjoyed her immensely as well. And I just wanted to know if you could talk more about what it is about Lydia, what it is about her personality, because she's one of those characters that you can't not want to hear from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I kind of I have to stop doing this in novels because I feel like I have one of these in every book that I've written so far. Mimi and Social Creature and Bonnie and The World Cannot Give and Elidia and here in Avalon. So many of the characters that I write are a little bit out of time. And they're obsessed with escaping the modern world in some way. And they get their sense of life from literature. And then there's these sort of people around them that sometimes they dismiss that are extremely basic or addicted to Instagram or have the sort of signifiers of being like not a very serious person in some way. And 
because a lot of fiction is in this sort of very close third person, we see them through the eyes of these characters who often dismiss them. And then I think one of my biggest commitments as a writer is this kind of full humanity of every character. No one is just like a plot device or a prop or like a mouthpiece for everything wrong with the modern world. And so in the course of getting to know them a little better and seeing the world from their perspective, we see that we've misjudged them and that they're as caught up in the search for transcendence as everyone else says. And Lydia is my favorite character. And the scene between Lydia and Rose for me is the heart of the book. Yeah, that kind of moral conscience. And I think that you've written a lot about different spiritual journeys. And of course, the way technology has invaded our life and makes we can curate all of our experiences. And I think it, it leads us down this path of being self-centered and thinking only of our desires, because we can just decide you know, what we want to look at. And it's, it's just for us. And so we don't think about the other side of that. Another kind of relationship that occurs in your novels are these kind of symbiotic or obsessive relationships. Yeah. I'm wondering about the lure of different spiritual paths, but I was wondering if you had, what were your experiences of that? <laughs> oh, well, I'm not going to go into detail about that, but I will say that the sort of, in some cases, some cases erotically charged and some cases not intense relationship between someone that I am drawn to and want to be like and more like or conversely, someone who maybe is a little younger or less experienced than I am, who I want to like, who I've in the past maybe subconsciously been like, I want to show you this. I want to like mold you, which is not a good impulse and I don't recommend it. But I think in each case, I've been at various times in my life, at various points in my life, I've been both parties. And I think I've been part of these relationships where I've learned about myself, who I wanted to be by either being influenced or experiencing a hunger to influence, to be like, I want to show you this world and I want to make this world a thing and I want to be part of it and I want to let my, I, I don't know where the story we're telling each other about ourselves ends and who we really are begins and where desire to be like uh, turns into desire to be with. And that ambiguity really interests me. And I think there's one very easy read, not of course in Avalon where the relationship between two sisters, but for my first two novels, they're often described as sapphic or queer. And certainly it's true that like there are characters in both books that I think like Laura, Laura's a lesbian. Like that's for me true of about her. But other with the other characters, I think it is more complicated. I think it's not that they're queer or straight or experimenting. It's that they're dealing with the question of what erotic desire is. And what Eros is often, I think, it's not reducible to this person's obsessed with being like this person because they secretly want to have sex with that person. It's they want to have sex with this person. They also want to be this person. They want to be more like this person and they want to be different from this person. And, and they want something and maybe it is this person. Maybe it's something that's beyond this person. And I think that like erotic, the realm of the erotic often is that level of complicated and back and forth and funhouse mirror-y where you're searching for something and you don't know what it is and it's in the other person, but it's also not. And so while I think that these relationships do between the central female characters in both my first two books definitely have a sexual component, uh, a sapphic component. It's not, sexual desire is not the like end point, the true story that everything else is revolving around. It's all mixed together. And I think that's also true. In, in Avalon is a sort of much more sexless book and, this, and it was by choice that there's a sort of 
the erotic desire, if it is there, is a kind of wholesale, I just want to be part of the Avalon. It's the energy that a theater kid has at a cast party. I want to make out with everybody, but in this kind of innocent way. And it's precisely, I think, because it is a book about trying to recover childhood. And it is, there's almost a weird sexlessness to the Avalon. Though again, I don't want to give too many spoilers. There are no literal fairies in the book, but the idea of the Avalon is modeled on tropes of fairyland and eternal youth and eternal innocence. And sexual desire doesn't weirdly have a place in it because it's, if anything, it's too dangerous. It's too adult. It involves certain kinds of risk. There's a very minor subplot that's in the background of the Avalon where two Avalon members have an attraction to one another that is never acted on in part because, you know, making things real, making kind of certain kinds of dangerous commitments would be to risk this perpetual innocent cast party energy. So. Cast party energy. I never thought about theater fandom as having that uh, spiritual quest, but I can understand it. It seemed like simple questions when you say, what is the nature of love? What is love? Or what is that line between what is beauty and what is sexy and what is erotic? And it's, it's something that we are redefining all the time. Talking about your nonfiction books, Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, I guess it's opening up the perspective and not narrowing it onto mm. one fictional religion or cult, or like, we, we haven't found the word exactly, but what it is. But you explore in that book remixed religious movements. And some I didn't even think of that, them as being religious or spiritual movements like CrossFit, well, polyamory. Some of these, I just thought they were fitness, soul cycle, and the social justice movement or Harry Potter fandom. These were things that I had never opened my eyes to what was going on in different subcultures. Yeah. I never want to make the case like Harry Potter fandom is a religion or social justice is a religion. But what I wanted to do in Strange Rights is say, we are in an era that is increasingly quote unquote secular. My numbers are all out of date now. At the time, I think it was 24% of Americans are re religiously unaffiliated. I think that's got, got up to closer to 30 now, especially among young people, Generation Z. We're getting up to 36 to 40% of people are religiously unaffiliated. But that doesn't mean they're secular. They don't believe in something. In fact, if you look at the numbers, they most people who belong to the unaffiliated category say they believe in energy or spirit or some force or some kind of God. But separately from that, I think the things that religion has traditionally done, if we want to take a kind of functional definition of it, providing us with meaning and purpose and community and ritual, in the absence of the kind of all-in-one mentality, you, this is what is true and this is what is real, this is how we deal with that religiously, we many people have much more of a kind of mix and match approach. I'm going to take a little bit of that. I'm going to get my community from this hobby. I'm going to do my self-care here. I'm going to get in touch with the vibes of the universe in that way. And what I wanted to say is not just that these things are religions, but that the mentality behind it, the idea that I can make my own religion, because what is religion? It's how I get these things and meaning and purpose and community and ritual are needs that I can fill. And the way that I fill them is like by going to the meaning, purpose, community and ritual store and getting what I want. But and, and so I wanted to both look at the kind of vast tapestry, the rich tapestry of spiritually adjacent practices among like millennial younger people, particularly in the unaffiliated world. But more broadly, what's the underlying kind of ideology underpinning it all? This idea that religion is something for us to make because the goal of religion is to make us live our best lives. And it doesn't really matter, which is the sort of shadow side of this, if it's true or not, if it's real or not. What matters is if it, if it works for you. And increasingly in self-made and in, in the nonfiction I'm working on now, which is a history of modernity and magic and occultism, I am interested in kind of the implicit nihilism 
of some of these assumptions. Like nothing is true. So what really matters is what works for you. And I think that often a lot of contemporary discourse about you do you live your best life. What matters if it's real is a little bit unwilling to face the implications of nothing is real or nothing is true, which whether you believe it or you don't believe it, and certainly people are welcome to believe that, it's a pretty significant thing to contend with and does have moral, theological, social implications down the line that I think do need to be worked out systematically. So it's interesting with this broader definition of religion or spirituality, it made me think about and what is a cult. People are typing in now to since the AI revolution, they're typing in theological questions, ask AI anything. And of course, with social media and these curated worlds where you can pose these possibilities, I think you can apply that same critical lens to AI as to what constitutes a, a cult in a very loose terms is that you give all up all this information about yourself, which is so much of our language output has been scraped and you give up your autonomy and then you allow it to permeate your life and take over your work and make decisions for you. Uh, and so I find it's like an interesting critical lens that might be applied to it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm still like a big AI skeptic. I haven't fully worked out my thoughts yet. I think that's something that's down the line for me in terms of the work that I'm doing. But I'm very wary of the algorithmic forces at work upon our, our world more broadly. Do I think that AI is a demon? Probably not, but I'm open to it. I, what I do think is that any tool that exists to flatten elements of our humanity will does risk making us less human or making us into different kinds of beings. And uh, I think the question that we have to keep in mind with all technology is like, what are human beings for? What makes us human? And is this helping us be human better? And is it helping us or is it taking things that make us and repressing them or outsourcing them? And I think that I'm not a technophobe. I don't think we should all go back to riding bicycles. I think it's great that we have clothing and medicine. And I think that if we were to be too conservative about any human ingenuity or things that make human life easier, it would be easy. It, it, it would be easy to like meme ourselves into being total Luddites, and I'm not. But I think that the criterion for tech making our lives easier is it doesn't make our lives better. Yes, I'm very much believing that we need to have governance for things that move so quickly and be, it's are difficult to control. It has opened up a lot of questions about the nature of consciousness and whether the that these questions were not so popular, except, of course, as a theologian, you're thinking about these neuroscientists, think about this thing, psychologists think about this. But now everyone's kind of asking, you know, where does consciousness lie? Is it in our heads, or our brains, our minds, our bodies? Could consciousness lie out there in the cloud? So I think that those avenues of query are interesting that have been brought up by these new technologies. Absolutely. I think the question of technology is a question of the relationship of what we choose and what we don't choose. We do live in an era that I think overvalues human freedom, human choice, human ingenuity. But I also think that often a corrective to that is necessary, uh, of course, but especially, and I, I'm coming from a lot of like Christian discursive circles where like a lot of the backlash is sort of right wing circles or, or from the right tends to be uh, very traditionalist, very authoritarian. We want to get rid of liberalism. We want to get rid of all things that have to do with too much human freedom are bad because freedom is bad. And I'm sure I'm being reductionist here and oversimplifying the argument, but I think that tendency to just say, let's go back to before the Enlightenment or before the Renaissance. Let's just keep moving the date further back in time. I can understand the impulse when people buy the modern world and frustrated by 
looking at everyone on their phones and uh, on the subway and the sense of alienation, the sense of purposelessness, I can understand the impulse. And I think it's a philosophical question, not a when in history was this best. It's what is the good of human freedom? How ought human freedom to be applied or be treated in conquered with these other goods? And what do we do about it from here, especially in a, a, a social landscape where we have or we think we have? And, and I think that's, a, again, an important distinction. Limitless freedom to read anything, do anything, uh, be anything, even as, especially in Kyle, uh, I believe, Kyle Cheka just had a book, Filter World, out about this is very good, that makes the case, which was very convincing to me, that we don't actually have that much choice. We're not actually choosing. We're watching what the algorithm provides for us, where we like one thing and Netflix shows us something like it. And so even this illusion of frictionless choice is not the same thing as the kind of choice where we are really seeking out or being made to give up. Not, not that it's a big existential decision what to watch on Netflix, but it, I think any sacrifice of our time and attention for any period of time, be it watching a movie or reading a book is a choice of what to do with our like limited mortal hours. And we don't actually choose as much as we think we do. And we're seen as data sets and data points, which is quite dehumanizing to be a product like that. You mentioned the Renaissance. And so in Self-Made, your book, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians, you trace the evolution of self-help and self-creation from the Renaissance to the present culture. So you've spoken about there the relationship between technological modernity and self-creation. How do you think contemporary digital platforms have amplified or altered the, the dandyism and the theology of self-creation that you explored in your doctoral research? It's democratized it, absolutely. So this idea that we can present ourselves as works of art, that we can create ourselves, it, it has always had a particular sort of aristocratic coding. The idea that you that self-fashioning is traditionally historically associated with monarchs, the people who create their public image and their public persona, including through fashion and their bodies. That's what kings do. And when we see the kind of gradual democratization of this idea as it becomes the associated with the dandy, the, the aristocrat of the spirit or the aristocrat of style, that there's a particular class of special person, maybe even chosen person, whether not necessarily of noble blood, but chosen through some other mysterious standard. And this is a kind of consistent motif in, in the dandiest uh, model of self-creation, that there's a mysterious quality, a je ne sais quoi, it, bon ton, whatever you want to call it, whatever language, uh, that makes some people just aristocrats of style and wit. What we see in the Instagram age is uh, seemingly exciting. It's anybody can be an aristocrat of style now. And there's a way of reading it saying, great, we're democratizing this and we're making it available to everybody. But what actually ends up happening is it, goes, it becomes less a celebration of individuality, even though it's, a, it's always been historically a celebration of individuality for some that uh, requires the assumption that everyone else is just sheeple, NPC, the mob, the crowd, etc. But now that we're all expected to do it, that this is work for us, if we don't self-promote, self-create, self-brand, we may not get into the college we want because we haven't had a compelling enough personal essay. We, when we may not find the right romantic partner because we have not uh, made a good enough Tinder profile or a Hinge profile and so on and so forth. And so I, I think that the idea that our experience our personalities, our private lives, everything that makes us is material or content for us to repurpose in order to get something from someone, be it a partner, a job, money, followers, clout, followers to get us more money, to get us more clout. It's, it, it is no longer a kind of form of 
pure self-expression. And I'm, I'm using that in air quotes because I'm not sure self-expression ever can be pure, but it becomes a kind of commerce. Who we are is as much material as once upon a time we had a farm and we could grow things on the farm and sell things on the farm, or we have property. Our souls are a kind of cultivatable property. And that makes me deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Indeed. Everything is a marketplace now. My name is Coco Carrillo-Lopez, and I'm a gender and women's studies student at UC Berkeley and a collaborator with The Creative Process. I was really excited for this interview because Tara's book here in Avalon is a thought-provoking novel that explores the human need for meaning and connection in an increasingly fragmented world. Just as the characters in Burton's novel seek solace and belonging in Avalon, people in our world are turning more and more to alternative ways of finding community through practices such as tarot and astrology. These practices were a beacon of light for many during the COVID-19 pandemic as witnessed on social media. With closure of my own business and my partner's tireless work as a frontline pharmacist, I too found myself isolated at home for nearly a year. It was during this time of solitude and introspection that I deeply connected with feminist theory as well as tarot and astrology, not just as practices for personal guidance, but as rich esoteric fields of study that use archetypes to unlock deeper understandings of ourselves and the world around us. I call these practices forms of hidden knowledge as they were sidelined during the scientific revolution by the same hegemonic systems that created chattel slavery and colonized indigenous lands. Archetypes, as identified by depth psychologist Carl Jung, are universal symbols and patterns that exist in the collective unconscious of humanity. They are building blocks of our shared human experience and can be found in myths, stories, dreams, and art across cultures and time periods. By exploring archetypes through practices like tarot and astrology, some of us can gain insights into our own psyche and find deeper meaning and purpose in our lives. As I was reflecting on these practices of self-discovery and the broader quest for connection in our fragmented world, it made me curious about Tara's insights into the need for more personal, meaningful interactions amidst our current social landscape. Now, back to the interview. You were talking about social media and the feeling of alienation that permeates throughout our society right now. And I had honestly never heard of dandyism until I started reading about your doctoral work. And I was wondering for you personally, what do you think can help folks find a sense of belonging in an era where connection happens more through social media than through in-person gatherings? I'm torn. I don't want to just tell everyone to go to church. I mean, it's what worked, it's what worked for me, but I, I don't want to necessarily evangelize on this podcast. I will say that in my own life, personally, that embodied space, especially like post-pandemic when I was able to go back to church, was is a huge part of the shaping of my weeks. And I have many, many friends, both my own age, but also multi-generational in that space. But I'll try to say a sort of a version of it that might be more, as it were, ecumenical, which is regular in-person gatherings with, with friends or with people that are committed to a project, volunteering, or go have your weekly soup kitchen volunteering session or something else that is in person that is project or commitment based and that lends itself to people who don't agree with you on everything or don't look like you or don't share your priors ideally multi-generational so I, I i don't know what other bizarrely the gym near my house happens to be a community center so i was just talking to someone about this morning i am i'm, I'm allergic to equinox i feel bad because i do they're actually a pretty good gym, but I've written about it so much that I can't bring myself to go. And it's also very expensive. So the gym by my house is very affordable, 
And it's because it's a community center. It does, I think it has subsidized rates for people in the community who are in the local near. There's like a strong senior center component. And every day when I go to the gym, I see my neighbors and I see, I work out with people in their 60s or their 80s and also their 20s. But it's something where I'm not someone who, I'm wary of the idea that I've written in Strange Rights, I've been critical of soul cycle as a religion or CrossFit as a cult and anything like that. At the same time, I think it's like better to get out and be in your community and meet your neighbors than not. And there's a a wide variety of ways to to do it. But I think generally speaking, getting to know your neighbors in your neighborhood is a good idea. And I'm lucky. I live in New York. It's a walkable city. Uh, It is easy for me to get to know my neighbors. Uh, I don't live somewhere where I would have to drive, which is good because I don't drive. It seems kind of silly and cliche to say, but just any regular thing that involves being around people in, in person that allows for fostering of friendships, but also allows you to meet people that you might not otherwise have become friends with is good is good. We should just all be in person doing things more. I was wondering too about your writing process. So writing at its core, it's a reflection of our life's complexities and the human condition. And I'm just curious about you as a person. So can you share a moment or experience in your personal life that influenced your perspectives as a writer. You spoke a little bit about your teenage years seeking for something. You you also have your doctorate in theology from Oxford. So I was just curious about your personal experiences and how they've shaped the stories that you tell. I think I am someone whose relationships, romantic, friendship, and otherwise are very, very influential on my work. I also don't write things that are ever explicitly autobiographical. Uh, I think there are People in my life on whom characters are based, but with very few exceptions, most people who appear in my novels are like they're composites. There's no one who's a one-to-one, almost no one who's a one-to-one correspondent. But I think the act of being in the world and around people, I definitely find myself interested in the detail, the very, very small details of people. And I actually have a terrible memory to the point where I like there's so many times where someone says something some way I'm like I wish I had a recorder. I need to start carrying like a very small pencil and paper in my purse because it's precisely the very little things that I think reveal very big things about a person. The cadence of their voice or the words they use to describe something. And I'm really interested in Jeremy Manley Hopkins who has this poem about things being themselves. And there's a way in which watching people be themselves. And I don't mean like self-express or wear an awesome outfit. I mean, do something where you're like, that's a very them thing to do is a really fascinating thing for me to watch. And so if there is an overlap between my personal life and my writing, probably there's the big picture stuff, huge thematic shifts in what I'm experiencing do make themselves known thematically in my work. But I've I've stolen one-liners for more than the thing I've stolen most in my books are like one-liners I've heard people say. Uh, I've stolen lines of dialogue uh, wholesale from things I've heard. Thank you for giving us a little a bit of a insight into your personal process when you're writing. I'm a gender and women's studies major at UC Berkeley, and I'm writing my thesis on exploring different forms of knowledge that have been sidelined by hegemonic systems. And you mentioned archetypes 
somewhat in the two works that I have read. And I'm just curious what your opinion is on archetypes. I'm using astrology as a case study for knowledge being sidelined by hegemonic systems. And I'm just curious what your take is on archetypes and different practices. I like to call them hidden forms of knowledge, but other people have different names for them. I think that we always try to find ways of defining ourselves against cultural, against archetypes, against narratives. And one of the things that interests me most is the process of trying to figure out what story we're in, to try to figure out who we are relative to stories. And I think we're always doing that. In a sense, here in Aulon, it's a novel about people trying to figure out what the genre of the novel that they're living in is. Maybe all novels are about people figuring out what novel they're in. I don't think we are reducible to archetypes exactly as people, but I think that constant trying on the different hats and the different wigs, metaphorically speaking, and saying, am I a this or am I a that? Am I a, a maiden or a mother or a crone? Am I a, a vamp or am I an ingenue? And I think particularly for, I, I don't know how it works for men. I think that there probably is a very particularly, without making any statements on how it works for men, because I do not have access to that knowledge, I would say that probably as a woman, personally, I am very aware of erotic or sexual archetypes as being something that I'm always like, the, the, I don't know if it's like the magazine quiz in the back of my, my head. Am I a vamp or am I an ingenue? Do I want to be a vamp or an ingenue? I think there is actually some kind of self-knowledge that is linked to knowing something true about ourselves. I don't think it, I don't think it's true that we're not anything. No one's a vamp and no one's an ingenue. Because I, I saw someone recently. I was in an environment. I was actually at the carnival in Venice where I go every year and figuring out like whose costumes I really loved and whose I didn't. And the people whose costumes worked best were not the people who had the most beautiful costumes, most expensive costumes, the best sewn costumes. They were people who had a kind of self-knowledge where they knew what looked good on them. They knew what their vibe was and they leaned into it. Someone who had a kind of 60s-y look did a full 60s-inspired, Courage-inspired dress. And someone who had this masculine 1930s, Marlena Dietrich energy did something based like that. And it was like, it's very clear that there is something about you that you have know really well and that allows you to have incredible style because you look like yourself. And I still haven't worked out. I don't have that kind of self-knowledge. I don't have that kind of style. But every time I see someone who has them, like this is clearly a kind of knowledge that a person can have about themselves that somehow dealing with the cultural stories we're in, but also the kind of archetypes of who we might be there seems to be some people who are able to find an actual truth in all of that, uh, but I'm not one of them yet. I'm working on it. That's interesting that you were saying that about the different archetypes, because I'm very um, interested in all of the archetypes within tarot and astrology. And I find that I identify with all of the archetypes in little ways, some more than others. But I had one more quick question too about sure. um, your book, Strange Rights, and the methodology that you used. Sometimes methodology has a tendency to leave some populations out. And I was just wondering about the intersectionality of the methodology of the statistics that you'd used in Strange Rights. 
Sure. So in terms of some of the big picture numbers, the two kind of primary sources, and it was an active discernment to figure out how to work with them because the PRRI and Pew both have like separate sets of polling data and separate questions about both of them are like the primary sources of like knowledge about religious life and affiliation in America. So figuring out how to look at the data together and find a story out of all of it, there was not an obvious answer of how to do it. It was a kind of mix of analytical data, but also a mix of the sort of the math and the humanities of figuring out like where my argument is and what are the sort of bigger picture stuff that I'm working with. I obviously interviewed quite a lot of people for the book because I was working. A lot of the research was also drawn from my time as a religion reporter for Vox.com. Some of the reporting was just for the book. Some of it was drawn from reporting I'd done as talking to witches. There's, when I was at Vox, there was a, like, a strong interest in me writing a lot about like a religion reporter, but I wrote a lot about yoga and witchcraft, which ended up shaping how I thought about strange rights, which had not been written at the time. So it was always a negotiation of who do I interview? Am I making sure that I'm interviewing enough people in enough kind of different broad enough cross-section of the population. At the same time, Strange Rights, because it is a book about, let's say, the more extreme manifestations of a particular cultural tendency, it does tend to be like centered, especially in young, middle and upper middle class, sort of millennial, coastal elite types stuff. Uh, And I will say that in terms of a lot of the data about religious affiliation and beliefs, there isn't actually a lot of difference across racial groups. I think that was something that I expected to find in my research, but I didn't, that there was the the numbers and the differences. Age was the biggest difference of like age and queer or not queer or LGBTQ were the only bigger predictors of being religiously unaffiliated every or having certain views about I believe this or my life is beliefs about energy and morality did seem to be pretty consistent. So that was something that I was surprised by, but it ended up meaning that there didn't need to be separate teasing out of some of that data. And so as you think about the future education, the importance of living an examined life and finding our spiritual path, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Everyone should probably throw their smartphones in a river, myself included. And I think just that It is hard. There's never going to be a version where you get the right answer and suddenly your life falls into place and everything's perfect. And that's not what it's supposed to be for anyway. And I think there is a tendency in like self-care circles that like once we like solve our demons and figure out our path in life and we are in touch with the vibes of the universe, like suddenly we're going to be wealthy and healthy and happy and have the perfect marriage. And I think the questions of philosophical inquiry are about how to live a good life. But that's not the same thing as assuming as so much of contemporary wellness culture assumes that a normatively like successful life will come to us as a virtue by virtue of doing the right things. Yeah, it's so important. And there's so many versions of what is a good life, so many paths. And I think that you really open our eyes to them. So thank you, Tara Isabella Burton, for your compassionate storytelling and opening our minds to question the fundamentals of religion, spirituality, and what gives our lives meaning so that we can regain our sense of community and expand our vision of the world. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. So nice to talk to you both. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Socorro Erekani Carrillo Lopez with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Coco Carrillo Lopez. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. 
We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.